going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 John for our uh, continued study in John's first epistle, his letter that we we are so uh, cherishing and working our way through uh, verse by verse. We are continuing this morning in a series of messages on uh, the reason that that John gives why true believers practice righteousness. Uh, before we dig into the details, let's uh, just um, go to the Lord in prayer. So would you please uh, join me in a prayer to our Lord and God. Our God, we have just uh, sung to you. You who have died for us, who have uh, been buried for us, and have been raised in newness of life as a, an example and as a type of what we will experience uh, in the future We thank you, Lord God, for giving us your word, giving us truth, and just ask that you would help us to rightly understand it, help me to explain it uh, carefully and clearly, uh, so that, uh, Lord, people hear from you, uh, and um, primarily just uh, hear from you and and not from me. Lord, may you be exalted and and praised in our lives uh, through the preaching of your word, not only the preaching, but in the reception of it. Help us to be doers of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We are continuing this morning looking at uh, the letter of 1 John, specifically 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to be really just focusing on primarily uh, one sentence in verse 8 this morning. We are going to be looking at the, the, another, the third reason why true believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin, and that is this, in the end of verse 8, because the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. This is just one, one more reason that John gives. We're going to look at a total of four. The fourth one we'll look at uh, next week is kind of the capstone to all of this. But John is building a very logical case why uh, true believers are known for their righteousness. Now, when we talk about known for their righteousness, we're not talking about sinlessness. Uh, John repeatedly uh, emphasizes the, the pattern of, uh, of sinfulness is what he's talking about. For example, just by way of reminder, in First John, in, in the first chapter, John says this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he adds to that, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So these, these words help us to see that, that John is not talking about, here in chapter 3, he's not talking about sinless perfection. That, beloved, is, is what we're going to be. He, he hints at that um, in, verse, in chapter, chapter 3, uh, verse 2. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So upon your, if you're a believer, upon your death, when the Lord takes you to be with him, or upon the Lord's return, believers are going to be made to be perfect. And so... Um, in, in this life, we will not be perfect, but we can look forward with hope to that time when we will be made perfect instantaneously through, through uh, seeing our Lord Jesus just as he is. And so throughout this, John is emphasizing a pattern, and what we mean by a pattern is a practice. 
Um, a good example of what John is talking about when he talks about pattern is the pattern that, that is mentioned in, at the uh, beginning of, or really the middle of verse 8 of chapter 3. He says there, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil, <clears throat> excuse me, the devil has sinned from the beginning. So that, that whole aspect of, this, of the devil sinning from the beginning, he's, he's talking about the devil has sinned and continually sinned, not that the devil has sinned every single second of his existence. He may have or may not have, we do not know. But the point here is the pattern. It's a pattern of sin that is unbroken by true repentance. Satan has never experienced uh, true repentance or true remorse, for that matter, that would lead to true repentance. He is hardened in sin and continues sinning. And so that pattern is is what's true also of unbelievers. It cannot be true. And he emphasized that it cannot be true of believers. And that's, that's John's larger case that he is building here. And then if you step back and say, what, why is John writing all this? Ultimately, he's writing it so that you might know that you have eternal life. That by believing in Jesus Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. So really what we're looking at is a, is a moral test of faith. It, it tests um, uh, our, the genuineness of our faith by looking at how we uh, live for the Lord, our, our, our attitude uh, towards sin and whether or not sin is a, is a practice in our life or not. And so the first reason why true believers cannot practice righteousness, or sorry, practice righteousness and cannot practice sin, it, it, we see it in verse 4, is, is because the nature of sin is incongruent with their love for God's law. And we, we saw that two weeks ago. Um, you know, John, John just lays it out there. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And lawlessness is, is ultimately rebellion against God. And so how, how can rebellion against God uh, continue in an unbroken pattern in a believer's life? It just cannot be. Uh, certainly we could say every sin is rebellion. So our individual particular acts of sin are rebellion. And they are no less dis- despicable to God. I, I don't want to paint the wrong opinion here. God hates sin, even our sin. Uh, the sin of the believers is, is paid for by Christ and His righteousness, but that doesn't mean He tolerates it or puts up with it. But the, the point that John is making is, is that if your life is that of just one lawless act to another, you don't know, you don't know Christ. And he's, he's helping us to understand who is a true believer and who is not. Someone whose life is, is full of sin... Who, is, who just goes from one act of sin to another, uh, is not a believer. It's not that they've, they were once saved and lost their salvation. Uh, no matter what they say about themselves, John emphatically says they don't know God. And then the second reason true, true believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin is because sin is incompatible with the work, of pers- work and person of Jesus Christ. And we saw this last week from verses 5 to 7. Let's tell us this, that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And we saw by that, that that not only did Jesus not commit sin, but that he had no sin nature within him. And he appeared in order to take away sins. Not just to die for sins and atone for sins, but to take away sins, uh, take sins away from our lives. 
Uh, in other words, he came to remove that sin from us, not leave us in it. His, his main concern wasn't just our salvation. His, his concern is for our salvation and our sanctification. And that's exactly why sin is, it, it cannot have a, a, a resident place within our lives. It is an unfortunate part of our, of our lives now. Because like I said, John is saying that, that anyone who denies that they have sin is a liar. So we need, to, we need to confess that when we recognize that we have sinned and, and allow the Lord to uh, work in our lives uh, to forgive us and to cleanse us from that. But that, that's, the, that's the life of a believer. The life of a believer is one of daily repentance. Right? Realizing where you sin, even if just in thought or action. Sometimes it's not just what you did, but what you didn't do. And, and so we, those, that's the way the Lord works in our lives to conform us to his image. We sin either by action or inaction. He brings that conviction into our lives. We confess that sin and turn to his word for instruction and help um, and by the power of his spirit to overcome that sin. That's the process of sanctification that he's working in our lives. And so that, John is building that case that with both the work and, and the person of Christ argue that, that sin can't be at home in a believer's life. You see, there are people arguing then, like people argue today, that, well, Christ atoned for all our sin. He paid for all our sin. So uh, if we view ourselves from Jesus' perspective, we're, we're spotless. We, we don't sin. And so they, they, even if they sin, they say, well, it's not really sin because Jesus paid for it. And, and so they, they end up downgrading um, sin in their lives. And there are other people who simply say, you know, Jesus paid for it all, and, and you know, sin, sin doesn't even really exist. It's just a figment of your imagination, um, which you know that if you're a believer, you know that that's, that's not a figment of your imagination. Sin is real, and sin is a, a real violation against the law of God. So this morning, I want us to look at the third reason why John says that true believers practice righteousness and cannot practice sin, and that is this, what I said in at the end of verse 8, that the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. This is a, is a very short but a very profound statement that John is giving us here. He said, for this purpose. He's giving us the reason. You know, sometimes you can wonder why God says certain things, why he gives us certain instructions in this case, or why he does certain things, in this case we're not left to wonder through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John provides instruction for us. For this purpose, a reason, the Son of God appeared. And this, this verse or the statement is parallel with the statement I read earlier from verse 5. You know that it, it, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In both cases, he uses the word appeared, Pointing to the incarnation, pointing not to the origin of the Son of, of God, but pointing to his appearance. He's hinting at the fact that the Son of God uh, existed prior to his appearance, prior to the incarnation. But, but I want you to notice with me, in verse 5 he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And, and the pronoun he there is a, is a Greek word that, that John actually only uses when he refers to Jesus Christ. Uh, other writers use it for other purposes, but in, in this epistle, John the Apostle uses that pronoun to refer to Christ. It's very clearly to Jesus Christ, but he does something different in verse 8. What does he do? He just doesn't say he. He doesn't use that, that pronoun 
for Jesus, he uses this title, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. Now, this is the first time in this, in this epistle that he uses that title for Jesus Christ. He'll do it a couple other times as we go uh, through, through the epistle. But this is the first time. And it's a, it's a significant first time. Why does he use that title here? Why does he say the Son of God? Why doesn't he just say, and he appeared? Kind of repeating what he said already. He, he says here, the Son of God appeared. There's a very significant reason. And the reason is this, that the Son of God is very much connected to, to Jesus having authority and the power needed not only to be the Savior of the world, not only to take away sins, but to destroy the works of the devil. There is a connection here with Genesis 3 that, that we need to understand. To be the Savior of the world, the Messiah would need the ability not only to take away sins, but to destroy the works of the devil. And how did he take away sins? By becoming a man, by living a perfect life, by dying on the, in our place on the cross, by being buried as, as proof of the death and being in the grave three days, being raised to, to newness of life, and as well ascending to the fathers as proof of the father's acceptance of the son's sacrifice. Now, to be the savior of the world and take away sins would require the destruction of the works of the devil. And that's John's focus here. The Son of God is a title that links Jesus to the promise of God given in Genesis 3. For a moment, uh, you can hold your place in, in 1 John and turn with me to Genesis 3. So it's not, not, unfortunately, there are not many churches that take Genesis in a literal fashion as we do. Uh, we believe that, that, that God gave us these scriptures. He's the one that brought about creation, and he brought it, brought it about in the fashion that we read in Genesis. So there was a, a literal creation. There was a literal Adam. There was a literal Eve and a literal Satan and, and the devil. And we, in Genesis 3, we read of Satan's entrance kind of into the world and the fall of man. Read with me, Genesis 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the woman, called to the man, and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Now, beloved, understand that, that in this passage what we're seeing is, is sin's entrance into the world. We, we cannot um, join with Adam and Eve and, and blame shift. That's what you notice they both try to do. Adam not only tried to blame his wife, but he ultimately tried to blame God. It's the woman you, whom you have given me. Right? So he was putting the blame on God, and, and Eve put the blame onto Satan. And when we deal with sin, we must realize we can neither blame God for the circumstances, nor can we blame Satan. Having said that, while God holds man accountable, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve at this time. Sin entered the world through the agency of the serpent, known as the serpent of old, known as the devil, known as Satan. He is the one who brought sin, that, that, that is the vehicle to bring sin uh, to man. He brought the temptation uh, to Adam uh, and to Eve. Now, understand here what, what is going on. I want you to pay attention in verse 15 when he's talking to, to Satan and putting a curse on Satan. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and the seed being a, a reference to uh, the children that she would bear. But notice it's, it, the next phrase says this, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That, that seed is referring to one particular person, not just children in general, but it's the seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. All right, let's think about what's going on. This is a, this is a, this is a promise of the Messiah. This is the first promise of the Messiah without using the word Messiah. What God is doing here is saying that, that the Messiah is going to come and he is telling Satan that he is going to bruise him on the heel. That is, that he's going to inflict upon the Messiah a non-lethal wound. Now, we know that Jesus was, died on the cross for our sins. We already affirm that. But what we, what we need to understand is, is that through the resurrection, that was a non-lethal wound. Non-lethal in the sense that, that through that, Jesus brings newness of life and overcomes death. But to, but what, what is Satan? What is Jesus going to do to Satan? And that is this: God says this, He shall bruise you on the head. 
a lethal blow. So the prophecy is, is that through Eve, though she be a sinner, through Eve, there would yet come a Messiah who would overcome the works that Satan had just done. What did Satan just do? He caused men and women to fall into sin. And there would become a Messiah who would undo that. And that, beloved, is the background behind this. That that is why John refers to Jesus as the Son of God. He is pointing us back to the Messiah. The term Son of God is very clearly connected with the Messiah. And I just want to read some of the passages to show you this. This There's a clear link um, from Adam and Eve all the way to the New Testament. So jumping the New Testament... Uh, Mark 1.1 1, 1 clearly gives us, the gospel of Mark says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, he's going to tell us about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because that is connected with his work of redemption. And, and, the, and the author um, of, of Luke emphasizes for us the connection with the Son of God by, by drawing out what, what Gabriel told to Mary. Gabriel talked to Mary uh, in in, uh, talking about the child that she would bear and and said this to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. You understand that that is connected with this promise of a seed, a seed of woman and yet a perfect seed who is coming from God, not one who is, who is sinful himself, but one who is without sin, who can come to fulfill that promise that we read in Genesis 3. And, and Luke later gives the whole lineage of Jesus, and he ends with this. I just gave you the ending of it. He says, Jesus is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Was Jesus the biological son of Adam. No, he's drawing a connection, a theological connection, and and, and in a sense, a a human connection uh, to this promise in Genesis 3. And and beloved, understand this. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the days of his earthly ministry, when he fasted, um, Satan came to tempt him. By what title did Satan address Jesus? the Son of God. He didn't say, hey, Jesus. He used the term Son of God. And Mark chapter 3 brought, draws us down. He says, um, I'm sorry, in, um, it, let me turn to Matthew, uh, Matthew 4, um, just so we can read that together. Matthew 4, I want you to see this. This is one of the accounts that records the temptations of Jesus. Part of his temptations, not all of them, but But part of them, in Matthew chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus was led up, I'm reading from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And the tempter came and said to him, um, Sorry, Uh, And he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him 
into the holy city and said to stand him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Or on their hands, they will bear you up so your foot will not strike, so you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. And in the third temptation, he doesn't address him um, in, in a, in, at all. It's not even recorded there. But he is, understand, he is approaching Jesus as the Messiah. The devil knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is addressing him by the messianic term, the Son of God. And he's questioning it, if you are. And really, it's, it's like, since you are the Messiah, you know, he's, he's, he's tempting Jesus uh, to, do, to, to show that he is the Messiah. Uh, but we know that, that Jesus was without sin. He passed the test and, and was qualified to be the spotless lamb of God who would, who would die on our behalf. But, but the, the link between the, son of, the, the term the Son of God and the Messianic title is, is very strong. Even the religious leaders of Israel, those who hated Jesus, understood this linkage. In, in Luke 22, the religious leaders say this as they're getting, preparing to crucify him. Luke 22, verse 67, says this, if, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And they said again, and they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And again, they fulfilled his prophecy. He said if he told them they would not believe, he told them and they did not believe. But there were people who did believe. Matthew 27 verse 54 says this, Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Even this Gentile, Gentile centurion, and those who were with him, not just him, but those who were with him, saw what was going on. They, they experienced the spiritual and physical darkness that happened for three hours while Christ was, was paying the, our penalty on, on the cross, was paying, paying our penalty, the penalty for our sins on the cross. They experienced the earthquake. They saw how he died, not of, of anything the Romans did, but he died giving up his own spirit. He heard Jesus' words, and at the end of that, his conclusion was this, you are the Son of God. Surely, truly, this was the Son of God. And, and this is in accordance with the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says this for, in John one thirty four. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Nathaniel believed. Nathaniel answered Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Martha believed in John chapter 11 after the death of Lazarus as Jesus was talking to Mary and to Martha about the death of their, of their brother and why he died and, and could he be raised to life. Um, Martha said this to Jesus, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day, speaking of her brother. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Even 
he who comes into the world. See, she, she got it. She understood. And we have the Apostle John himself. We have his words in his gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Listen. John says this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John believed. Paul believed. Saul, who persecuted the church in, in, in the early days of the church, was converted and brought to faith. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we read this, after Paul's conversion. And immediately he began to p- proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That, that, was, John, that was Paul's first sermon, that, that message. I'm sure he said a lot more, because Paul could preach long sermons. But that was his first sermon, one-sentence sermons. He is the Son of God. And he, he preached that and he argued that to those in the synagogues. So much so that Paul said this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, beloved, surveying passages like these help us to understand the connection of of what may just seem a simple term, the Son of God. We can read it and just kind of blow over it. But understand that John is pointing to the fulfillment of the promise back in Genesis 3 for the destruction of the devil. And that's why he brings it out here. The Son of God came for this purpose, going back to 1 John chapter 3. The, the Son of God came for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when John mentions the devil here, he's talking about a real created being. He's an angelic being. This isn't just the, the forces of darkness out there. This, this is a, a true create, created being um, of, of God. He, Satan was created. Now the, the world, I'm sorry, the word the devil is, is Greek from diabolos, meaning the accuser or slanderer. That's, that's essentially what the word devil means. He's an accuser or a slanderer. And he's known in scripture as the accuser of the brethren. That is the accuser of those who have faith in Jesus. He's a, he's a slanderer. He seeks to slander you. He seeks to accuse you before God. Now, The fact that John uses a definite article before this, the devil, shows us he's referring to Satan himself. This is the accuser, the slanderer. As I mentioned, Satan is a created angelic being. He was not created as Satan. God did not give him the the name Satan or the devil. When God created the angelic beings... Right? We're not given the exact time frame of when that happens, but when God created, when he finished creation, he, he said this, and we, we get this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, including all the angelic host. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was a morning, the sixth day. So the angelic beings were created at least by the sixth day, and they were all declared to be Part of God's creation, very good. So the devil wasn't the devil at this point in time. We know not exactly when he fell. Must not have been very, very uh, long. But at some point, the devil 
rebelled against his creator. Um, sound a little familiar with what's going on here on earth? Our rebellion against our creator? Right? It just shows you the pattern. That's the pattern that John's establishing. You will be like the one... You're, you, how you act shows who you're following. The devil led the first rebellion against God. Those who rebel against God on here, on here on earth are just merely followers of Satan. Right? And we'll get more, more into that in just, just a moment. But, but understand, when Satan rebelled against God... Um, he led a host of, of, of the angels, approximately a third of them, in rebellion. He was so, he was so deceptive. We underestimate that. You know, Genesis says he was more crafty than any other created beings that the Lord God had made. God didn't make him that way. He became that way. Right? But understand this. He was able to deceive a third of the angels of heaven, though they saw God, and though they witnessed God speaking things into being, we, we're told that in the scriptures, he was able to deceive a third of the angels into following him in the rebellion against God. That's simply profound. Right? We, we do not know the, the power of his deception. Right? That, and that's what the scriptures warn us about. Jesus speaks of, of the event of, of, of Satan falling from heaven, the rebellion, in, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 12, where God says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And Jesus spoke of this event in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Um, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. God knew Satan would rebel. It didn't take him by surprise. And he created him anyway. And some say that makes God the author of evil. But beloved, that kind of logic is human logic and it is untrue. God created everything that is right. God takes no pleasure in evil. And we, as his creation, cannot stand in judgment upon God. We may not understand why God created Satan... Again, he wasn't Satan. He was probably the most majestic of the angelic host and probably the most powerful at that time. We know not why he created him, knowing that, that, that he would lead such a rebellion. But just because we don't understand should, should not cause us to question the wisdom and love and righteousness of God. And it often does. And it does because of the sin nature working within us. We question the wisdom and nature and goodness of God. But we should not. Understand, beloved, that that God is going to hold Satan accountable for everything that he has done. And in fact, we know from Jesus' teachings that, that God has prepared hell primarily as a place of punishment and torture for uh, the devil and his angels. Not primarily for people who won't uh, repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Now, they'll be there too, but it was primarily prepared for the devil and his angels and not as a party place as our popular literature and as Hollywood might think. It is a place of punishment for Satan and his angels. They will not enjoy it. It is a place of punishment. And that's why many times Jesus reiterates a warning to us 
as those who are alive here on earth to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we'll be saved from that punishment yet to come. We do not have to go there. Satan's future is fixed. Ours is not at this point if you're living and breathing. But understand, beloved, when, when the devil had great success at destroying the works of God. Ultimately, if you want to know the purpose of Satan, what he is about, what makes him tick, whatever destroys the works of God. And that's why he struck very early in the garden. Here the works of God declared to be very good, and Satan said, I'll show you. I'll really make a mess of this. I know how to do this, declaring his own pride. And he did quite, make quite a mess of it, as we read from Genesis 3. We need to understand that, 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 that the devil's characteristics are that he's very crafty. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Right? And, and beloved, just because someone says that they've seen an angel of light in some dream or some book or some movie, don't, don't believe them. That's quite scary, actually, if you, if you compare it with Scripture. Anybody that sees an angel of light and comes back to, to tell you about it may just have seen Satan and they don't even know it because he so deceived them. Scripture says that. Satan comes as an angel of light. In other words, he's going to come, he's going to come as a pastor. He's going to come as an elder. He's going to come telling you that he's teaching you the truth and trying to sell you the truth. How are you going to know? How are you going to know? How do you know Anybody's telling the truth. Because God's given us the word of God. And anybody who is, who is a, a true shepherd in, in, in the likes of Jesus Christ is going to be opening the scriptures and pointing to the scriptures and rightly explaining them. And, and any, anybody who stands in a pulpit and doesn't do that is an agent of Satan. He's just, they're just misguiding you. And they're doing so, either knowingly or unknowingly, they're doing so at the devil's beckoning. Because he is so crafty. If he can't get you to ignore religion completely, he's fine with you being in church. Uh, and even kind of feeling good and, um, and thinking, especially if you think that you're a believer when you're not. He's fine with that. But you understand, the devil's characteristics is he's crafty and he's a liar. And he's a murderer. Jesus calls on this in John eight forty four, In speaking to the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus says this, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Listen how Jesus describes the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the, fathers of li- uh, the father of lies. That very sin nature within us that causes us to struggle with sin, if you're a believer, that nature, in, in essence, flows from Satan. You understand now why God doesn't tolerate sin in our lives? Because that very seed of rebellion flows from the father of lies, Satan. That's his bloodline, if you will. And, and, and Christ Jesus came to destroy that bloodline, to break that bloodline and create a new bloodline with the sons of God. And that's why John brings this out. See in, in verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children, children of God. That we would be born, not, not physically of God, but spiritually of Him. Though we were really born as... as um, uh, as with 
as sons of Satan in a manner of speaking. He's, Satan is a liar. Beloved, John is, is, is telling us that the devil has sinned from the beginning. He knows only the path of sin. He knows not a single thing of repentance. And he is bent on our destruction. He is bent on the world's destruction. He is bent in deceiving the world. And the combination of angelic power, crafty deceit, and this total bent towards sin makes Satan a devastating enemy of humanity and of God's people in particular. And that's why Jesus warns his followers. Um, The apostle Peter says this, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are called to be alert. We're not called to be fearful. We're called to be alert that we would not fall prey to the devil's strategies. And just in summary, what do we do with such an adversary? We don't walk around doing prayer walks commanding Satan to do anything. We have no authority to, 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 to command Satan to do anything. Even though we are children of God in Christ Jesus with our Lord, we're never commanded in Scripture to go command Satan to do anything. In fact, there's, there's precedent in Scripture that even other angels don't command Satan. For example, in Jude 8, it tells us this, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Right? So anybody that's out there today that's, that's somehow like... like um, Trying to tell Satan what to do, Satan is just laughing at them. Because they have no authority and they know not who they are messing with. They are just wasting their time. So what are we to do? Again, not fear. Our refuge is in Christ. And if we are in Christ, the devil has no bounds in our lives. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right? And the submission to God and the resisting the devil go together. Right? By submitting yourself to God, to his wisdom, to his word, by calling the devil the liar and submitting to God, you are resisting him, rather than calling God a liar and believing Satan's lie. Understand, beloved, that Jesus says this, the good shepherd says this, the thief comes only to kill to, and destroy, sorry, to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, the lie is, the lie is, from Genesis onwards, is that Satan comes subtly and says, God really isn't out for you. He's really holding some things back. If you want to really live life, don't listen to God. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. And what he says really isn't true. Right? Everything that, that, he, that, 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 that the devil says is a lie, but we are so inclined to believe those lies rather than the truth of God. That, that is what God has to rescue us from that. He has to open our eyes to that or we will not see that on our own. 
So we're called to submit to God and resist the devil. We're also called to put on the armor of God. We don't take time to go look at that. But Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, talk about the armor of God and, and, and the role of the armor of God in our battle against Satan. Beloved, understand that, that the devil, though he is powerful, I would say the most powerful uh, creature of God's creation, at least he was created that way, he's not equal with God. We need to understand that the devil is not God's equal. The devil is accountable to God. The devil has to, had to ask permission to sift Peter like wheat. We read that in Luke 22. He couldn't, Satan couldn't just go attack Peter. He had to ask the Son of God for permission to do that. And understand, beloved, there is a doom to Satan. His future is not bright, and he knows that. But he's going to take as many people with him as possible to hell. Revelation uh, chapter 19. You just jot it down. You can go read it later. Uh, This is a very important passage of scripture. Revelation 19. And I'll I'll just read a few verses of it. Revelation 19 verse 19 says this. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Him who sat on the horse is, is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And this, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Beloved, when the thousand, verse 7, he says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog, Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down into heaven and devoured them. That was it. This massive army, the greatest army that has ever, will be ever assembled against God is just devoured in seconds. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, that's the devil's future. And he knows that. And he is uh, working nonetheless against God to destroy his works. In his foolish thinking, he thinks he can actually still overcome God. But again, taking this back into our text, 1 John chapter 3, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. And just very briefly, we talk about what are the works of the devil. Essentially, the works of the devil is that of a liar, of a deceiver. And we see it in Genesis 3, he gets, he gets Eve, and likewise all that flow from her. 
He gets Eve to question God himself. He gets her to, to question God's holy will. And, and, for example, what it is, that how she should live her life, the commandments of God. And then he, he gets her to question the consequences of disobedience. See, this is the way that Satan works in our lives. He lies against God and God's character. He lies about God's uh, instructions, God's commands. Did God really say? And then he lies about the consequences of sin. Say, ah, you, you surely won't die. And these, the same pattern of lies is told today. And because of the sin nature that we inherited from Adam and from Eve and all the way down from our parents, we are more inclined to, to listen and believe these lies than we are the truth of God. And our, and our society is struggling with that today. People think that they arrived at uh, Darwinian evolution on their own smart sense. That's just a concoction of lies from the devil. You can go through in, in, in area after area, see how our society has believed lies. Evolution, just a, it's just lies. Lies from Satan. It has no basis in science whatsoever. There is no science that supports macroevolution that somehow beans and it came out of primordial soup and primordial mud and, and became human beings that can interact and reason with one another. That's just a lie. And, and the lies go on. The lies of our society say that to have fun, you've you got to go just like live it up. Get drunk and, and you know, sleep around with whoever you want to sleep around with. Choose your own pleasure. Don't be faithful. What's marriage? Let's destroy marriage. What, you know, marriage, we can redefine it into our own image. We can redefine it how we want to define it. We want to be on the right side of history, the phrase goes. But, but on and on it goes, the lies of Satan. This isn't like humanity becoming smarter. This is just humanity falling into the lies of Satan. We are all tempted this way. We are, we are more tempted. When something goes really bad, ask yourself this, honestly. If something's gone really bad, are you tempted to blame God? Are you tempted to blame God, at least momentarily, even as a believer? I've found that I have at times. It's awful. But when something goes bad, we want to like... Why is that? That's because that, that, of the sin that still is in us. And you can imagine how bad it is in, in people who aren't believers, who don't have the restraining work of the Holy Spirit to correct their thinking. All of us, we're told in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the people. And our eyes were also blinded before we came uh, were rescued by the Lord by the coming to uh, salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, listen to the way that Paul describes pe- all people. That includes us before coming to Christ in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Listen how, how he is described, how, how the devil is described. The, the, the God of this world, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of dis, disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There was, there was no different. And we're told in, in 2 Timothy, um, Paul tells Timothy there in 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, verses uh, 24 to 26, say this, that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Listen to this, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, beloved, whether, whether they acknowledge it or not, all unbelievers are held captive by, God, by the devil to do his will. They think that, that they have, um, it's their own ideas. They're deceived. They don't know that it's really Satan, Satan's lie that they've bought into. They're rebelling against God, and they want nothing of it. And so, when we, just taking this back to, to what John is saying, that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy those lies through the proclamation of God's word, through the proclamation of the gospel. He rescues us from those lies. We all, we all would believe those lies. Hook, line, and sinker. We're not any better than anybody else. But the Lord saved us and opened our eyes to help us to see who was telling the truth. It wasn't Satan who was telling the truth. It was God. And through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes us from the kingdom of darkness, from, from being enslaved to Satan, into the kingdom of light and being enslaved to our Lord Jesus Christ. That we would walk in his pattern and not the pattern of sin that the rest of the world walks in and that that Satan wants us to walk in because his goal is to destroy the works of God. But beloved, the final word here is that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy it. Wipe it out. And he does that through, he did that through the cross. And Jesus, before he died on the cross, he says, it is finished. The price has been paid. It is completed. He He has done that. And what we read about in Revelation is just the mopping up operation. It's just, you know, in military terms, the the battle's been won, and and Jesus will just do a little mopping up operation in in Revelation to to deal with the devil. The victory has already been won. Satan has thrown his his best at God and could not keep him down and could not destroy him. The Son of God came and fulfilled his mission to redeem humanity, and redeem humanity he will. And all this fits into John's argument that sin, pattern of sin, persistent sin, has no place in the life of the believer. He says it cannot. We're going to see that in verse 9 next week. The believer cannot sin. That is, cannot just continually sin in the same pattern as Satan sins. It just cannot be. That's how we know who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. And that's where John's going with this, and we'll see this uh, next week. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we just want to thank you for the great battle that you have won, the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, Lord, just, we just want to thank you for that. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the wonder of Christ and the beauty of Christ and how he rescues us 
from our sin and from uh, really slavery and dominion of Satan. And just pray, Lord, that you would use us as your ambassadors to proclaim Jesus Christ and that through our our testimony and witness that you would work to draw men and women to yourself, uh, again, even, even today, for your glory and honor. We just ask that you would build your church, that even the gates of hell, though they resist you, will not stand against the building of your church. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.